On September the 1st, 1939, the German military machine crossed into the borders of Poland and kick-started the historical event that we know as World War II. Over the course of World War II, 50 million people lost their lives. And you know that in the Nazi Holocaust in particular, 6 million Jews and then 5 million ethnic minorities of different kinds and communists and political dissenters and homosexuals, another 5 million of them, for a total of 11 million people lost their lives in the Nazi Holocaust. And we look at that moment in the middle part of the 20th century, many of us do, we look at that as sort of the apex of human evil. That if you want to see exactly what man is capable of, of exactly what we can do to one another, you see it there in the Nazi Holocaust. But what you may not know is that on September the 1st, 1939, when those German soldiers invaded Poland, that every single one of those German soldiers who crossed into Poland and kick-started World War II had engraved on their belt buckle in German these three words, Gott mit uns, which is German for God with us. Now you hear that and you think, there's no way that any rational thinking person would ever believe that God was on the side of the Germans in World War II. And yet, looking back over history, there have been countless times where people have used God and have used the name of Jesus to perpetuate all kinds of evil in the world. Some of the worst things that human beings have ever done to one another have been done in the name of God and in the name of Christianity and often in the name of Jesus. And there may be no more vocal and pronounced argument against the Christian faith that people are quick to make today than to say that Christianity is and has been bad for the world. And some people would even go further and to say that all religion everywhere is bad for the world. Particularly, they may say that Christianity has bred all kinds of evils in society. The patriarchy, misogyny, racism, capitalism. All of those things are the product of Christianity. And Christianity is a negative influence in the world. You ever heard that? If you ever intend on being educated at a college campus, you will. Is Christianity bad for the world? Doesn't religion empower people to be violent, narrow, and exclusive and cruel? Maybe today your concern is not about worldwide atrocities committed in the name of God or God's. Maybe more locally, you can look back over your own life and you can think of people in your mind who have preached one thing to you and then practiced another. That have used the name of Jesus to abuse or promote themselves or to hurt others. Is Christianity bad for the world? I want to answer that question for you today. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter number 26. And we're going to look in verse number 47. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 47.
Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 47. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against me as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abideth forever. Over the past few weeks at Sharon Heights on Sunday mornings, I've been trying to help you think through and hopefully answer, but at least hear, some of the big questions that people have about God, life, the universe, Christianity, and everything in between. And it dawned on me several months ago as I was thinking through this series of sermons that in the last days of his life that Jesus himself was bumping into these kind of questions. And so a couple of weeks ago, I took you to Jesus's trial before a Roman governor by the name of Pontius Pilate. And there, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus this question. What is truth? Is there any objective reality? Is there any binding morality that is true for all people everywhere all the time? And then last week, we skipped ahead a few days and talked about Jesus' encounter with one of his disciples, Doubting Thomas, where Thomas hears that Jesus has resurrected from the dead. But Thomas says, listen, unless I see his body with my eyes and I touch his resurrected body with my hands... I'm never going to believe. I tried to answer the question of, hasn't science really disproved all the miracles of the Bible? Now we can understand the world we live in. Do we really need to believe that God is tinkering in the world all the time like the Bible says he is? Well, today we're reading a story that comes right before Jesus' trial before Pilate. And it comes when Jesus is arrested. Jesus, as a faithful Jew, spent the last night of his life celebrating the Jewish festival of Passover, commemorating God's deliverance of the people of Israel out of Egypt way back thousands of years earlier in the book of Exodus. Jesus has had that meal with his disciples. Jesus leaves that meal and he goes into an olive garden, not that kind of olive garden, there's no breadsticks and salad, but he goes into an olive garden named Gethsemane to pray. And while Jesus is in that olive garden, a mob comes, and the Bible tells you that they come with swords and clubs. It's pitchforks and torches to come and arrest Jesus. And they're led by one of Jesus' own disciples by the name of Judas. And Judas comes, and he signals that Jesus is the target of the raiding party by greeting Jesus with a kiss. And then that's when all chaos breaks loose in this crowd. 
Because when Jesus is starting to be led away, the Bible says that one of the followers of Jesus, and we know from some of the other Gospels that this is Simon Peter, the most outspoken, the most vocal leader of the apostles. When Jesus is being led away, Peter reaches inside of his cloak, he pulls out his sword, and he tries to cut the head off of one of the arresting officers. But he misses, and he cuts his ear off, so that guy never looks right in sunglasses again. But when I see Peter reacting violence, pulling out his sword, trying to defend Jesus by really taking somebody else's life, I find a good place to answer this question. Is Christianity bad for the world? Because isn't that how religious people act when they feel like they have to defend their God? Don't they get violent? And don't they become cruel? And don't they become ruthless and relentless. Is that not the story of Christian history, the crusades and the slave trade and all of these terrible things that have been done in the name of God? Well, today this story is a great place, I think, to answer that question as we start thinking through violence for Jesus. Because that's a big part of this story, is violence for Jesus. Because you see Peter here afraid, his master is threatened, His own life may be in jeopardy. What does he do? Well, he pulls out his sword and he tries to fight back. He tries to impose his will upon the arresting officers by the threat of violence. And it's fascinating to me to read this passage of Scripture and just to see Jesus and his disciples on this side of the law, isn't it? You wouldn't read through the Bible up to this point and expect Jesus to be the guy led away in handcuffs and put in the back of the cop car on live PD, right? But here you are. Jesus is being arrested. His disciples are trying to do anything that they can to scramble and to fix things right. But is this how religious people ultimately always act, given the chance? You may hear some people say something like that. Because, after all, if God is on my side, then there's nothing that I can't do and feel justified doing it. There's no evil that I can't commit. If I believe that God is on my side, never forget that on September the 11th, 2001, that was a theological statement by people who said God is on our side. Is that what religious people do? Because if God is on my side, who are you to tell me I don't have the right to invade Poland? If God is on my side, I should have the right to take as many child brides as I want. Who can tell me otherwise? And all throughout history, you can find people saying exactly that kind of thing. That's why today in our culture, one of the most common TV tropes is the trope and the character of the bad religious guy, especially the bad preacher or the bad priest. Put the guy in a clerical collar and you know he's up to no good. You know that he's shifty and you know you better watch out for him. The old western of the drunk preacher who's a washed up gunfighter, right? The preacher's got something to hide. Did you know that several years ago there was actually a TV show that came out? I think it might have been on FX. The TV show was based upon a comic book and the name of the comic book is Preacher. You don't know what the preacher's name was? Jesse. No joke. And it was all about demons and devils and how this preacher was, you know, this big hypocrite and all kinds of crazy stuff. But that's what the world often thinks today. In fact, if you watch a lot of, um, a lot of news media from 
maybe a more progressive way of thinking, you'll find out that for every single piece of legislation that is passed that goes against what progressive politics might desire, you will hear that you are never more than two weeks away from living through the handmaiden's tale, that this is a Margaret Atwood dystopian future where women are going to be repressed and men are going to take over and the patriarchy is going to reign and Christians are going to rule the world and the evangelicals are taking over and when they do look out because we're going to have slaves again and we're all going to be polygamists and we're all going to go to war again the people that disagree with us and you hear all of that so much why because there's a belief among so many people that christianity is bad for the world you say well i've never heard anything like that keep listening you will but is that what religion does does it poison people's mind does religion make people feel entitled to do violence and to do harm against other people here's how one writer describes it. Tim Keller, who himself was a pastor, he said that religion transcendentalizes ordinary cultural differences so that parties feel they're in a cosmic war between good and evil. And that helps clarify what I'm saying. Think about this. If I am on God's side, if I am doing God's work, if you try and get in my way, then I have the right to oppose you because you're a devil. If I'm on God's side, anybody who tries to stop me is, well, you're on the wrong side. And so throughout history, you do find people that have weaponized something that they call Christianity. And they have traded human beings as slaves. And they have done violence against native peoples. And they have forced conversions. And they have waged war. And all of these things have happened in history. The truth is they happen in our history too. People use the name of Jesus For their own gains in our churches. People use certain verses of the Bible. Ripped from their context. To advance their own agendas. People will quote scripture sometimes to manipulate. I'm not going to deny that those things happen. But as a follower of Jesus. What I want to know is how does Jesus respond when that does happen. What does he think about all this. What does he say when Peter pulls out his sword. And cuts some guy's ear off. What does Jesus say? Well, let's look at the values of Jesus. They're in this passage of Scripture because Jesus responds. And Jesus does not respond by telling the other disciples, go and do thou likewise. He doesn't say, guys, pull out your swords, let's go and let's fight back. But Jesus responds really with three statements, each of which packs more punch than Peter's sword. Jesus' first statement is to Peter. In fact, there's a certain degree to which all these statements are to Peter. But his first statement to Peter is, put your sword in its place. Put your sword in its place. Put your sword up. Now, Jesus does not here tell Peter to hand his sword over, does he? He doesn't tell Peter, Peter, hand your sword over to these officers. Jesus is not here, I, I think anyway, and good Christians would disagree with this, but Jesus is not here uh, preaching pacifism. Rather, Jesus, I think, is reminding us that a sword does have its place. Now, today, in any kind of gunfight, if all you brought is a sword, you're going to be outgunned, all right? So you can just take this to be Glocks and shotguns, all right? But who, what is the proper place? It's an important question for us to answer today. Because this question is the subtext of so much cultural discussion. What is the proper place for violence? Who has the right to do violence against whom and when? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible is adamant in places like Romans 13 
that the state is a God-ordained institution that has the right to do violence in certain instances, to curb evil, and to enforce good. Let every person, Paul writes, Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Then he says this, but if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, Paul says a lot in that passage of Scripture. But one of the most important things he says relevant to our discussion today is that those that represent the state as police officers or in the military, sheriff's deputies, those people are given the sword or they're given weapons to defend the interest and the laws of the state. I see Brother Fred. Brother Fred, when you worked for the sheriff's office, they gave you a gun, didn't they? And you had the right in certain situations to defend yourself and to defend the law. Because there are certain things that we could do, crimes that we could commit that would be so horrible and so atrocious that they would need to be stopped with violence. Now, why is this important to understand this? Because when you look back over history and you see people who have, in the name of Jesus, done great violence... More often than not, what's happened is people have married together in an unhealthy way, the church and the state. And they have used the state's right to have the sword. And they've poisoned it with some perversion of the gospel. And really what you found is you found governments that are committing violence for their own interests. But they're trying to give it a Christian name so that it'll win popular support. Now I say that to tell you this. History is complicated. But we want an overly simplified version of history that will advance our agenda in the present to shape the future. Here's what I mean. The Crusades were horrible. Terrible. The bad. And yet, you hear so much about Christian violence perpetrated in the Crusades. But you would almost never hear about the Christian communities that existed in North Africa for centuries that were completely destroyed by the rise of Islam in the 8th century. Why? Because it's inconvenient to the narrative. You hear so much, you hear this every single Columbus Day about how Christopher Columbus was a terrible person and he came and did all these things to the native people in South America. I don't know if Christopher Columbus was a bad guy or not. I do know that he wasn't a very good sailor. He wasn't even trying to end up in South America, but he did. But you almost never hear about the violence of the Aztecs and the Mayans, do you? You don't hear about 10,000 people a day sacrificed to Quetzalcoatl by having their heart cut out while they were alive. That's inconvenient. You hear so much about how Christians in America and in Europe, how they advanced the slave trade from Africa, and that is true. But you also don't hear about how Christians abolished the slave trade, especially in England, through the work of people like William Wilberforce. Now, none of those things prove that Christianity is true. But they do prove to you that history teachers are often liars. And it's important that you know that. So, Jesus says, put your sword in its place. Then Jesus says, one of the most famous things Jesus ever said, that people don't realize Jesus is the one who said. When he says that the person who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And that is a parable, it's a proverb that is absolutely true. That if you use violence 
to accomplish your goals, eventually you are going to receive violence yourself. And that's true all throughout history. That's true in life, isn't it? I mean, it's true even just in kind of a, a micro scale. Like if you're mean to people, they're going to be mean to you. Maybe that'll help some of your interpersonal relationships. You wonder, why are people always so hateful to me? Maybe you're just not nice, all right? But if you live by the sword, Jesus says, you'll die by the sword. That there will be this, this perpetuating cycle of violence. And even today, man, that is as true today as it was in Jesus' day. That, that like Jesus teaches here, that violence begets violence. But as you think about this principle, I think it teaches us something probably important about Peter. Something significant about Peter here, because I don't think Peter was necessarily trying to defend Jesus as much as he was defending himself. Now, I think there's part of him that wanted to, you know, cut Jesus free. But I also think Peter is not so much acting like a good Christian here in Matthew 26. Peter's just acting like a normal person. He's afraid. He's panicked. He's backed into a corner. Fight or flight takes over. He remembers, hey, I've got a sword. And so he tries to stab his way out. Now, his aim's not very good. And so instead of cutting off a guy's head, he cuts off his ear. But I, that's, that's the way I take Peter's actions here, that he's not being consistent with what he actually would claim to believe as a believer and a follower of Jesus because Jesus tells him, Peter, what are you doing? Put your sword up. Don't you know that if we live by the sword, we will die by the sword? And I think it gets to something deep inside the human heart because even still today, there's something in us that likes to fight in there. Maybe we would never pull out a sword and poke at anybody. Maybe we would never pull out a gun and shoot at anybody. But there is something in us that likes to see the other side lose. There's something in us that loves to see the news story break apart, break across the screen that tells us the politician on the other side of the aisle has been caught in some sort of terrible financial scandal and we want to see him led out of his office in handcuffs with his suit coat over his head. We love to see the other guy lose, don't we? We love to see the other side fail. I have forgotten over the past few years I've forgotten who I'm supposed to boycott this week. There's an outrage here. There's a scandal there. You can't support this company because they give money to this organization that supports this other thing. And you know you can't. It's like, how are you supposed to keep up with the outrage? But we do want to see people get canceled. We want to see our side win. Why? Here's why. Because the Bible says that we are sinners. And as sinners, we are a people that are turned inward on ourselves. We're selfish, self-centered, self-promoting, self-reliant, self-righteous, self-defending the way Peter is here. And we need something to pull us out of this kind of sinfulness. You know, there are a lot of reasons I believe the Bible is the Word of God. One of the most important reasons that I believe the Bible is the Word of God is because in my 36 plus years of living, human beings act exactly the way human beings ought to act if what the Bible says about human beings is true. We act exactly the way we would act if we really were people that were made to know God and yet something has gone terribly wrong and we treat ourselves as if we are God. That's exactly how we act. But here's the question. What is it that's actually going to fix it? What is it that's actually going to fix this impulse that we have to hurt and to harm and to cancel and to boycott and to blame and to do violence and to trade slaves and to kidnap and to wage war? What can fix that? Well, I think you find the answer in the third statement Jesus makes here. It's really a question. 
But it's driving home a point. He asks Peter. At least I take him to be asking Peter. Verse 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus says to Peter, Peter, I don't need your stupid sword. Because I could ask my heavenly father and I could have him send 12 legions of angels to defend me. Now, a legion was a a Roman military unit that that was comprised of 5,000 soldiers. Jesus says, Peter, do you not realize that I could have 5,000 angels here for every single scared disciple? God doesn't need your sword. But Jesus is doing more than just confronting Peter. He's also confronting us. Because for Jesus to be able to say this about himself is nothing less than Jesus claiming to be the God of the Old Testament and the God of heaven. One of the most common names for God in the Old Testament is the the name Lord of Hosts. And what it means is that God is the God of heaven's armies. And here what Jesus is saying is that he is the one who has all of heaven's armies at his disposal. And yet here this man is claiming to be that God in handcuffs. And instead of bringing down heaven's armies against his enemies, he does nothing. Why? Why doesn't he fight back? Why doesn't he just speak the word and vaporize all these people? Why is Jesus doing like this? Because the gospel message is that the kingdom of God does not come through the violence that we could do to other people. But the kingdom of God comes from the Son of God who took violence on himself. Who took the sword in himself. So that you and I could be saved from our sinfulness that turns us against one another. That's why Jesus says to Peter, that's why... He says again in verse number 56 that all of this is taking place, that the prophets would be fulfilled. This is what Scripture is all about. Scripture is all about God coming into this world to take sin on His shoulders, to die a violent death so that you and I could be forgiven and you and I could be made new. You say, Brother Jesse, what does that mean? That means that God does not need your sword. That means that the kingdom of God is not advanced through violence. That the kingdom of God is not advanced through power grabs. That the kingdom of God is not advanced through human effort and human intelligence. But the kingdom of God is brought into the world through a suffering and a humbled and a dying Savior. Who is lifted up to take sin into his own person. So that he can bring forgiveness to Peter, like people like Peter. And like this high priest servant. And like you. You see... Jesus is the one who's different in this passage of Scripture. He's not like Peter. He's not drawing a sword. He's not like the people who arrest him coming under false pretenses with torches and pitchforks. Jesus is different. He's calm. He's in control. Jesus is so different that in this passage he calls his worst enemy, Judas, his betrayer. The one who set in motion the wheels that started turning to bring about his death. Jesus calls his worst enemy friend. Why? Because he's different. And one of the things we need to consider today, if we look at Christianity in history or Christianity in our experience 
in the church. And we see people behaving badly. And we see people using the name of God to accomplish selfish and sinful impulses. If that has been our experience, then we need to deal honestly, not just with the history of Christianity or our own experience in the church. We need to look at Christ. And we need to realize that Jesus saved his loudest and most vocal criticisms, not for people just in sin, but for religious people who practiced hypocrisy. Jesus condemned. Jesus condemned, in Matthew 23, he condemned preachers who made themselves rich by taking money from widows who didn't have it to give. Jesus condemned hypocritical preachers who placed burdens on their congregations they never intended to carry themselves. Jesus condemned people who were two-faced, people who used their office to promote themselves. Jesus condemned religious hypocrisy over and over and over. Which I think today proves that Jesus is not on the side of everybody who claims they're on his side. Jesus is not on the side of the hypocrite. Jesus is not on the side of the false teacher. Jesus is on the side. Well, Jesus is on his own side. And Jesus is on the side not of the sword, but he's on the side of the cross. And really, when you read this passage of Scripture, what you should see here is that Peter is fighting against not so much the enemies of Jesus. To really understand this text, you have to realize that Peter is fighting against the will of Jesus himself. See, Jesus had already told his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 that the day would come when he would be arrested by his enemies and he would be crucified. He says to them, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying. Far be it from you Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter. Get behind me Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God. But on the things of man. Peter from the moment he heard about Jesus' intention to be crucified. He fought against it. He resisted it. He did everything he could in his power to keep Jesus off the cross. And what he's doing in Matthew 26 is exactly the same thing. He's still fighting the cross. Why? Because Peter wanted what many of us want. He wanted a Christianity without a cross. He wanted Christianity without a cross. He wanted Christianity without the humbling message of a crucified God. Because when you take the cross out of Christianity... What do you have? You've got a message about glory. You've got a message about power. You've got a message about advancement. You've got a message of morality where some people achieve and others are left out. You take the cross out of Christianity and whatever you have, it is not Christian. And so often... The worst sins that have been committed in the name of Jesus have really been committed in the name of a crossless Christianity. Because the message of a cross is a message of humility. It's a message of self-denial. It's a message of embarrassment. It's a message of weakness. It's a message of foolishness. But it is the central claim that we have today. That our God went to that cross for us. That like we just sang about a moment ago, our Savior took our sins on His shoulders. He came as a sacrifice to die in our place. 
And we only know Him. We only know Him, not because we are great, but because He is great. We only know Him, not because we are powerful, but because He embraced weakness so that He can lift us up out of our sins. And we have no right today to destroy or fight against those who are different from us. What we have the right to do today is proclaim His great love for sinners. And to lift up His name to those that are hurting. And to lift up His name to those that are shamed and to those that are weak. Peter is fighting Christianity without a cross. Years ago, a man who really was the father of modern Christian missions by the name of William Carey. Found himself serving as a missionary in India. This was in the 19th century, really the 18th century, and it wasn't easy to get across the street back then, and so it was difficult for him to get to India. And when he found himself in India, he found a place that was in deep spiritual darkness. He found, one day he tells the story of how he and a missionary companion were walking along the road, and they looked up and they saw a basket. And inside that basket were the bones of a baby. That had been sacrificed there by its parents to appease one of their gods. He talks about witnessing the practice of sati. Which was an ancient Hindu practice where a woman was expected to throw herself on to the funeral pyre of her husband when he died. So that they could be together in their next reincarnation. He saw these widows being burned alive. He saw children's bodies after they had been sacrificed. And he worked tirelessly, William Carey did, worked tirelessly in the name of Jesus to push back against that darkness and to bring reform and to bring change in India. And in many ways he did. And William Carey is a humanitarian hero. He's a man who brought great change and brought incredible relief to human suffering. But why did he do that? He did it because he believed in Jesus. He did it because he believed that Jesus cared about the suffering and the pain of the least impressive, least important person in all of the world. But otherwise, why would you help a baby in a third world country? Why would you care for a leper the way William Carey did? Why would you care for an Indian widow whose life is at risk because her husband died? Why care? Why does it really matter? Friends, what the Bible tells us today is that every life matters. Because every life has been made in the image of God. And that every life to some degree or another is going to be marked by suffering because we all live in the same sinful world. But Jesus came into a sinful world to fix what is broken in us. And to fix what is broken around us. And it tells us that we can know Him by trusting Him through faith. That we don't know Jesus because we're important or intelligent or impressive. We know Him because we've given up on ourselves and looked away from ourselves to Him alone for our salvation and for our life. And so what the Bible tells you to do today is more than just consider Christianity. There have been things that have been done in history in the name of Christianity that are terrible, tragic, and horrific. And I think Jesus would condemn them and does condemn them. And one day He will handle those people who have misused and abused His name. But the Bible never really tells you just to consider Christianity. The Bible tells you to consider Jesus. And I think in this story, where Peter cuts off this guy's ear, when you read some of the other Gospels, fill in some of the gaps that Matthew doesn't tell us, you have one of the most incredible stories in all of the Gospels about how Jesus himself 
fixes what his followers have broken. Because what you see, and the Bible doesn't tell us, I don't know why Matthew didn't include this detail. It's one of the most important parts of the story. But the Bible tells us in the other Gospels that Jesus healed this man's ear. Which is probably what saved Peter's life. It's probably why Peter wasn't arrested. Jesus somehow reattaches this some kind of plastic surgery or whatever he does. And in a supernatural way, he, he fixes and heals this man's ear. And I think it is a great reminder for all of us today that Jesus can fix what his followers have broken. Jesus can heal what his followers have ruined. Because there, every one of us, every one of us can look back. If we've been in church much at all, we can look back and we can see how Christians have lied to us, have been cruel and unforgiving, have been on some kind of stupid power trip. But folks, Jesus is better. And he can fix what his followers have broken. He can put back together what a hypocrite has busted apart in your life. That's what he specializes in doing. And so today, as I conclude, I just want to tell you today, Jesus is far better. He is far better than any of his followers could ever make him. That at best, at best, the best Christian preachers and the most faithful Christian witness, they could never describe his greatness to you. They can never describe his glory to you. And he is certainly far better than any hypocrite could ever preach him. He far exceeds, he far exceeds what man can say about him. And what the Bible invites you to do today is not just to look at Jesus and develop an opinion about him based upon what you've heard from somebody who's misrepresented him. But what the Bible tells you today is that he can fix what his followers have broken and you can know him. You can know a Savior that is better that anybody could ever preach Him. You can know a Savior that is better than anybody could ever sing about Him. You can know a Savior that is better than anybody could ever represent Him. Do you know Him today? Do you know Him? If you don't know Him today, how about this? Don't you come and get to know Him? And we could say today, well, He's hurt me, People or people have hurt me, Christians have hurt me and abused me and lied to me. Sure they have. They have me too. But Jesus is still better. Jesus is still better. Maybe today some of you are here and you know that Jesus is your Savior. And you know that He's your Lord. But you've had these kind of Malchus moments too. Where followers of Jesus have pulled their sword on you. And you have the scars. And you have the wounds of how people in your life have not lived up to what they've said about Jesus. And it's hurt you. And it's damaged you. And you've shed your blood over how people have abused you. Maybe even in Jesus' own name. Church, Jesus is better. And he fixes what his followers break. He can heal those wounds. Carried that hurt. Died for those sins. Died for those sins so that you could forgive those sins. And so that you can know this was never about the people who misrepresented Jesus. It's always been about him. And he is far better. Let's stand together today.